morning. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open up the book of Acts this morning. We, uh, as, you, as many of you know, have been going verse by verse through Galatians, but in order to really understand the power and impact of the next section of that letter, I want us to review not only the circumstances and events that surround the conversion of Paul, but some of the dramatic elements of that event. So if you have your Bible with you, please open up to Acts chapter 9. And we're going to begin in verse 1. And I remind us, as I do every week, that this is God's Word. And that we should hear it and receive it as such. The very Word of God. But Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you're to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go. To the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he's seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil. He has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine. To carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose, and he was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. 
For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for the purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? Please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, as we gather in this place to worship you, we do so delighting in Jesus. We do so remembering the life and death and resurrection of Jesus that transformed us so much. Lord, we remember and celebrate the one true gospel, and we are here that we would grow in your grace, that we would know you more. So come and meet with your people. Come and condescend to bow down and draw near that you might reveal yourself to us and in us and then through us. Lord, we know our helplessness. We know that you have the strength and power and glory and goodness. Make yourself known to us. We ask in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the power of his Holy Spirit and all God's people agree. He's too far gone. He's just, he's too far gone. This is a phrase that can often terrorize onlookers, loved ones. This phrase can come out in various ways at various times, but the most notable ones are the deepest and largest moments of crisis. This is a phrase that is offered in hospitals. The cancer is, is too much, metastasized or spread. Might be a wound, an accident, a car crash, where the totality of the injuries seem insurmountable for health and wholeness ever to return. He's too far gone. I'm sorry. These are words that men have said on battlefields. Whom can I save? He's too far gone. Moments like these in crisis can sometimes even apply in a dentist chair. Sorry, the infection is, is too far. I got to take that tooth, and I'm a wizard like Tim. And I'm going to put a new one in. Here's an implant. I can replace it. But I can't keep that tooth. Can be low stakes. Sorry, honey. I overcooked that meat. I got distracted, but like that turkey, <laughs> it's too far gone. <laughs> I think for many of us, we believe in the concept of too far gone. But I wonder if there are moments when we make assumptions about situations and events that God doesn't agree with. 
that there are people or moments or situations or even teeth that are not too far gone because of the power of God at work. So as we come to the text today, as we consider the, the apostle that the Lord gave to the Gentiles, and we think about the churches that he planted in southern and middle Turkey, they know these stories. They have met the man to whom they apply. And we will see that at the very core of this conversion is an attack on the phrase, he's too far gone. The early church knew no greater enemy in the flesh than Saul of Tarsus. You'll see that in the attitudes and conversations of this passage. And we remember that helplessness is in the core of the gospel message. You cannot save yourself. You cannot bring about the change that is necessary in you that you would be in right standing with God. Helplessness is something we in our 21st century American Western culture don't like. What do you mean I'm helpless? I'm not helpless. What do you mean they're not helpless? Or you're not helpless. Of course you're helpless. Mercy comes in the face of helplessness. Isn't that what the pastor in the 1630s knew? That mercy comes in the face of helplessness? Otherwise, why cry out for what you already have? At the center of this moment in church history, at the center of the controversy that leads the Apostle Paul to write this letter to the churches around him, is the question about helplessness. Are you helpless on your own to serve God? To love what God loves? Or do you just need a little help? A, a little sprinkle of help? Or do you need God to do the whole darn thing? The whole thing. At the core of the gospel is an unrelenting dependence on God. To be God and do what God does. So as we listen to this story, let us remember and hold true the innate helplessness that the gospel proclaims to us. We need Christ. It's not that we once needed Christ, as if we are now fine and can do it on our own. We are as in need of Christ today. As ever. So consider this testimony as Luke records it. We begin in chapter 9, verse 1. Listen, Paul, 
is called Saul. And many people have different names depending on the community that they're in. So please forgive me. I'm going to say Paul and Saul pretty interchangeably. And you can giggle to yourself and say Kevin is switching between Hebrew hat and Gentile hat, if you must. Saul of Tarsus is a rising rabbi. He's way ahead of his fellow Jews of his own age. He's gaining and garnering power and authority. He is someone that people listen to. He's a decision maker, and above all other things, he's a zealot. He loves the traditions of his forefathers. And so, in the early church, Saul was breathing out threats and murder. Luke didn't begin softly, did he? But there's a double meaning here. It's not just that Saul is threatening the church. It's that his exhale is of this nature. In the same way that the breath of God created all things and the breath of God animates the dead and brings them to life, in this moment, the early church saw Saul as an anti-God, bringing death, not life, bringing murder, not justice. Saul is breathing out these threats. He's not just speaking them. And as he speaks, others follow, and people die under a flag and banner of justice It is really vengeance and hatred at the core. And so the disciples are in danger. That's what verse 1 is trying to communicate to us. That Saul is breathing threats and murder against the disciples of Jesus. And because that's true, he goes to the high priest in Jerusalem and asks him for letters to carry to the synagogues of Damascus, giant city, so that if he found any belonging to, and then here's the funny phrase, the way, before Christians were called Christians, they were called followers of the way. This is not Taoism. If you study Eastern thought, philosophy, religion, there's another religion, philosophy, called the way. It's Taoism. But in this case, they're called followers of the way because they're referring to something that Jesus said in John 14, 6. I am the and the and the got it? So shorthand for Christian was follower of the way. And he wants to arrest and carry back and throw in dungeons and even execute any who teach or rely upon the name of Jesus of Nazareth. The one who claimed to be God and the way to heaven. 
So he comes loaded with the scrolls. They are, in all practical purposes, warrants. Warrants for detainment, arrest, and transport back to Jerusalem. And then we're told, verse 3, that now as he was on his way, he approached the city where he was going to do this, quote, cleansing of Judaism and arrest all these insurrectionists, not to Rome, but to the God of the Old Testament, he thinks. And as he's on his way, he approaches this city and suddenly, suddenly can be a very exciting word in the Bible. Because almost always it's followed by something dramatic. Sometimes dramatically awesome. Sometimes dramatically overwhelming or scary or even sad. Death can come suddenly. But so too life. Suddenly a light from heaven shone around Saul. It was so bright. It was so startling, it knocks him to the ground. It's easy to read this stuff, right? Isn't it? And you're just sort of like, yeah, religious thing, light, yeah, light, angels, heaven, I got it, yeah, keep going, hurry up, I got lunch today to get to. This is a light that is so pure, so bright, that it scares Saul to the ground. This is a light so bright, so pure, so heavenly that as he is on the ground, God in heaven speaks and says, Saul, Saul. Now, this doesn't happen in our culture. If your kids are in trouble, how do you call them? Yeah, first and middle at least, first and last. And if they've really stepped in it, all three, right? I sometimes feel like I'm calling my kids a mass murderer by using all three names, right? Most of the great villains of the last century we've referred to in their three-name moniker. Sydney Rebecca Haas. Not fun, right? I love you. (laughs) Those don't usually go together though, right? Full name almost always is arresting. In Hebrew, if your first name is repeated twice, you're in trouble. In fact, you can see this in the Gospels when Jesus is crying out about the condition of Jerusalem. In the, in the days and weeks before the uh, crucifixion and resurrection, Jesus cries out, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. So Saul sees the light, feels the light, is weighed down to the ground by the light, and then his name is repeated twice. Now, he knows what follows It's not going to feel friendly. Doesn't mean it's not given in love. Correction is often given in love. Not always, but often. 
So here's Saul hearing his name repeated by God. And it comes, of course, with the rebuke. Why are you persecuting me? Can you imagine this moment? God having told you you're in trouble, then asks the question, why are you persecuting me? Now this might feel a little strange to us, but so strong is the union between Christ and his people that to persecute the people of God is to persecute himself. Did you know you had that strong a bond with God in Christ? That if you are martyred, he is experiencing the awful with you and claiming it as his own in the same way that we in Christ claim the sufferings of Christ as our substitute, so too does he think of our wounds as his Why are you persecuting? He doesn't say the temple. He doesn't say Judaism. He doesn't say the religion of the the patriarchs. He doesn't say, why have you dedicated your life to the destruction of the church? He makes it as personal and individual as possible. So here's Saul, who's on his way to do what he believes is best, according to God, in the name of God. And here's God, the commander of the armies of light, identifying with those that Saul has already imprisoned, tortured, and executed. So here's Saul, helpless on the ground, having a conversation with one upon whom his eyes have not seen. So he asks, who who are you? And the Lord here should not be overblown. This is not a substitute for Yahweh. This is powerful one. This is leader, master. Not my master, but a master, Lord. And then the Lord answers. Who is he? He says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Again, how close the identification of Jesus with his people. The charge repeated now. And then, after giving the rebuke, He then gives the command. This is a little quick for me. It's easy to read it, right? It's easy to go from verse 5 to verse 6 and just kind of, all right, what's next? Okay, here we go. We're going, we're going, we're going. You are persecuting me. Here's what I want you to do. Can I, can I get, I can't even stand up. Can I get my bearings a little bit here? Rise, enter the city. Which city? The one you're headed to. And you will be told what you are to do. 
All right, at least it's not a complex command at this point, right? You are persecuting me. Should I stop? Here's what I want you to do. I want you to finish that journey to the city, and I want you to wait. We love waiting, right? Don't we? It's like our favorite thing to not do. Rise, go, wait. It's similar to the cry of command that God gave Abraham, isn't it? Here's what I need you to do. I need you to leave where you are and go. There's more to come. Okay. Enter the city and I'll tell you there what you must do. To understand this moment and its awesome elements, consider verse 7. The men who are traveling with Saul, because of course you need to carry some soldiers with you. These are dangerous times. You might end up in jail. They heard the same voice. But unlike Saul, they didn't see whom was speaking. This is an interesting insight. That the voice was present, that the light was understood, but they had no capacity to see the one who was speaking. And this passage is often about seeing. So here we see in verse 8, Saul rises from the ground despite what fact? He's blind. Powerful men love being helpless, right? Those who think they see all very clearly are very arrested when it's taken from them. When you are capable and able and you become incapable and unable, it's almost like being a different person. You're so unzipped in that moment that you are not what you always are. And you can't do what you've always done. So here's Paul rising from the ground despite the fact that he's blind. He cannot see anything. In fact, the description that's given to us is not that he lacked sight. It's that he saw Nothing. It's a good description of total blindness. Not partial blindness or you can't drive a car blindness, but the kind of blindness where your eyes are open but no light comes in. So the people who are with him, who heard the voice but saw nothing, they're the ones who have to lead him, and I love this phrase, by the hand. Who do we normally lead by the hand? Children, right? Kids, how many times do you like being the, the one who has to give your hand? And most of the time, it's a sign of comfort and, and preventive correction, right? Cannot let this kid wander on his own because wandering off is easy. So you're ensnared by the powerful grip of your father. 
by the tender grip of your mother, but when they are holding you by your hand, you are not alone, but you are also constrained, limited by another. They have to lead the mighty leader who is unable by the hand, and they bring him to Damascus. If we're really going to understand this moment, we have to understand the helplessness of this setting. And we can see helplessness in Saul, right? He's blind. You don't let the blind guy try and make his way to the city, let alone through the city on his own. He needs to be led by the hand. Do you know who else you lead by the hand? Prisoners. Right? You bind them up. And you take them in your charge. And there's a degree to which they are led by the hand. They are helpless. So it makes those action sequences in a movie so fun. How are they going to get the prisoner out of the bus, away from the correction officers who are armed with shotguns and, right? We got to get him. How do we spring him? How do they, how do they interrupt this? It's because they're being led by the hand according to the authority of another. He's experiencing a version of what he's been doing to others. It's a direct assault on the intent for which He was headed to the city. He was headed to the city to bind others. And all of a sudden, he finds himself bound. He who is able to serve God in the name of God, bind others, is now himself bound. How helpless must this arrogant and powerful man feel So he comes into the city, he waits. But he does more than wait, he fasts. For three days he could not see, and neither would he eat or drink. Religiously, we call this what? Yeah. I want to tell you, that this is an awesome response to this moment. God himself is talking. The one whom he's been opposing is now the one he's experienced in such a way that he must think it through. He must yield to the Lord. This is a man who has dedicated his life in the discipline of trying to lay himself out before Yahweh. He has the zeal for the traditions and the truths. That's what led him to take the backpack full of warrants 
in scroll form to Damascus. He loves God. And now he's got to reckon with the idea that he's been on the wrong side. Everything he was fighting against is what he should have been fighting for. There are many times in your life where you have to wait. There are many times in your life where you're unable, unable to accomplish the things you wanted to do, whether it's by sickness or disease or accident. There are plenty of times where we are physically limited by something. Waiting for things to heal, waiting for abilities to be restored, waiting for a deliverance that seems impossible. In those moments, you can pity or pray. You can pity, you can throw a great self-pity party. I am a master of this. You've heard me say many times, Christians should throw the best parties. I have seen many a Christian throw the best pity party. Or you can yield to the obvious, obvious desire of God in that moment and pray. And pray and pray and pray. Not keeping track of who's reaching out to you, but instead thinking about the people you wish were reaching out to you and reach out to the Lord on their behalf. Your suffering is an incredible opportunity for intercession. You can pray. That's what the Apostle Paul is doing. For three days, he's not interested in the affairs of the world insofar as his self-preservation is less important to him than serving God. For three days, he can't see, but he can pray. He can fast. He can seek the Lord without sight. And then, cut scene. As this story is being told, we get to another place. Verse 10. Now, there, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. Again, fairly common name. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And if you're Ananias in this moment, you're waiting to see if your name is repeated. Right? Ananias. Oh, no, no, no. Oh, just one? Sweet. What you got? Ananias. Yes? Here I am, Lord. He answers God as a prophet would. Here I am. Send me. Here I am. And the Lord says to Ananias, rise and go to the street called Straight. There is creative in naming things as I am. And at the house of Judas, not Judas Iscariot, lots of Judases. <laughs> Boy, that's proverbially true also. But go to the house of Judas and look for a man from Tarsus. His name is Saul. For behold, he is praying. 
And he's seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. So if you don't go, i got to find a different Ananias. Just kidding. The Lord is calling upon the servant that he has and sending him in power and authority and clear instruction to go and to lay his hands upon Saul of Tarsus in the house of Judas on Straight Street in Damascus. And the purpose of that is that he will regain what he formerly had but doesn't have now, his sight. Okay. And Ananias says, of course, Lord, immediately. Or maybe he's a little bit more like us. Ananias is uh, not ready to obey just yet. He's got questions. Verse 13 is significant. Ananias replies to God, Lord, this guy? I have heard from many about this particular Saul of Tarsus. This is not fame. This is infamy. How much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. Lord, I know his motives, and if he's got no vision, the church is better off. He can do less harm. So God, I know you didn't have this information, but like all of us do. So we're happy to let you in on the gossip. Feel for a moment the unthinkable nature of this command. It's unreasonable on any human level. This is the guy we are most scared of on planet Earth. He goes on to call it havoc in Jerusalem. Havoc. This is what he's doing, O Lord. And not only did he do it in Jerusalem, but verse 14, here he has the authorities literally stack the scrolls in a travel bag. And it comes from the highest level, the chief priests. And he has the right and the power and authority to bind. You know, lead them by the hand. All who call on your name. Anyone who worships Jesus. And the Lord replies, go. Does he say, don't worry, that's not the future? Does he say, I know, I know, but like give him a shot. People change. People are basically good, don't you know? The Lord says, go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And if you're worried that there's going to be no justice in Paul's life, understand verse 16. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. You think he caused damage. We agree. 
but he's going to have such a greater glory because I have the power to do it. I have the power to take enemies and make them servants. And notice, Paul never gets a vote. Verse 15, God says, he is a chosen instrument. Not he chose to be my instrument. He was my adversary, my rebel. He was the havoc causer in my holy city. And that is not too far gone. If he draws breath, I give the breath of life. No one is too far gone. No one is too entrenched in a worldview or an activity. No one on earth is too far gone for the gospel to grab hold of them. No one is beyond the touch and care and transforming power of God. Paul will not have a smooth, easy, clean life. Read his resume in his letter to Corinthian, not the, not the Philippian one, the Corinthian one. How many shipwrecks? How many stonings? How many lashes will he take on for the ministry and sake of Jesus? So here's Ananias. Here's Ananias knowing the history of this man. And he is walking with every step closer and closer and closer to the moment of his own arresting. Because if God will let Saul suffer in this life, which is temporary, for his namesake, why wouldn't he let Ananias suffer in this life, which is temporary? Can you imagine the faith that this moment would require? Did I hear God? Yes. Do I want to do this? Uh, no way. But like, like he said, go. He didn't say if I want to go. This was a command and I yield to my master. Can you imagine the trepidatious of the moment? How trepidatious is this moment where he's, like reaching for the doorknob. And he's, he's going to enter through. It's the moment of no turning back. How many times did he want to turn back? We don't know. But if he's anything like me, it would be like, all right, I'm going. I'm just not going quickly. It's like your children who are like, I will sort of obey. But I won't do it with a smile. walk through in faith he walks through it was in faith he rose it was in faith he walked and it's in faith that he enters and listen to his opening words listen to the power of faith when you believe that God can do what he says he will do and he can create what he says he will create and he will redeem what he says he will redeem, what is the first word out of Ananias' mouth? Brother. Who else has the power to turn a havoc creator into brother? Brother destroyer 
into adopted family member. We know these tropes. We study this theologically. We believe in the doctrine of adoption. But do we believe it in the same way that Ananias does? When his opening line, there's no theology exam given. There's no, tell me about your doctrine of justification. I don't want to lay hands on the wrong guy. Maybe there's another street called straight. Maybe there's another Judas has property. Maybe you're the wrong Saul of Tarsus, who's the destroyer of the, oh boy. Something happens between Lord, wrong guy, and brother. Brother. Brother Saul. This is as authoritative as you've seen. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to, how awesome is that? He doesn't say, I had a vision. He doesn't say, God, talked to me, and maybe you're the right guy. Maybe I'm in the right place. Maybe it's possible he spoke to you too. His encounter with God is so sure, so solid, when God says, I spoke to Saul, that Ananias knows that God keeps his word, that he does what he says, so he goes in and claims a vision that he didn't experience. The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you can have your sight and far more beautiful than that. You may have the filling of the Holy Spirit and in that exact moment we are told, verse 18, immediately, something indescribable, the best we can do is call it scales, fell from his eyes. He regained his sight and gets baptized as a follower of the one he used to persecute. And then he takes food. And then his body is what his soul is, strengthened, renewed. And then we're told that for some days, he's hanging out with the disciples at Damascus. And then he's immediately proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues, crying out, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were what? Amazed? Amazed. Stunned. In awe. Who has this power? Who has the power to take enemy and make them brother and servant? Who has the power to take the, the biggest dangerous man and make him a stalwart apostle? laying the foundation of what happens in the church life, making sure that the outsiders become insiders. Isn't this the guy who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for the sole purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? It might have been why Saul wanted to go to Damascus. But it's not why God wanted 
him to go to Damascus. Brothers and sisters, we are helpless in conversion. Because there's no pride in conversion. Why you and not your neighbor? Because you're smart? Because you're sincere? Because you're nifty? Because you're wise? Because you're desiring? No, 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 no. Because he has chosen. He has planned. And he gives you a new will so that you want what you didn't want, so that you love what you used to hate, so that you build what you used to tear down. And so I ask you, do you believe that this was a real transformation in the Apostle Saul? Yes. Then do you believe the same God who's building and advancing his kingdom in and through Saul of Tarsus? can use you today. Not for the same things, but for the same purpose. The advance of the kingdom of God. Do you see your helplessness? Do you believe in radical conversion? It's a joy to watch radical conversion. When you see someone become everything they weren't, it adds and builds to your faith. This is one of the reasons why we need to tell more stories of conversion. We need to talk about radical transformation. One of the great errors of our modern church is that we don't talk about sin in both aspects, who we used to be apart from Christ and how we struggle today. We sort of talk about it almost always in this distant rearview mirror. Oh, if you'd have known me back then. Well, because you don't need any help from God right now? The only thing a non-Christian has in common with you is sin. Right? Why don't we talk about our sin? It's the, it's the first part of identifying the gospel. I need to be convicted of my sin and misery. If we only talk about a person they never met, it loses its power. I watched Jacob Alexander come in as a freshman at CNU, and I got to have conversations with him about where he came from and, and politics. If you hang out with Jacob, you're going to talk about politics, but you're also going to talk about life and justice, and civil society. You'd be surprised to know he's a lawyer. <laughs> he was built to be a lawyer, to advocate for justice. But more than that, he was not a follower of Jesus. He grew up in a home. The Lord was not taught or beloved. And his freshman year, pretty safe to say God was not really on his radar. But God gave him a roommate who grew up in a PCA church who loved God. That's no accident. It was a gift. And over the course of that fall semester, Jacob became what he was not before. A Christian. A follower of the way. A lover of Jesus. 
And I can attest that he is both a better version of who he was and radically converted, radically transformed. And that transformation is starting to work its way up his family, his parents considering the gospel, his grandparents considering and talking with him about the goodness and trustworthiness of the Bible. Jacob Alexander is a radical convert. And he's becoming a great man of God. And y'all have seen this yourselves and recognized the work and ministry that he does in our church. And I'm pleased to say he's in officer training right now. So pray for him. He needs it. It's a monumental moment in his life. Asking questions about what God has called him to do. But don't just pray for him in officer training. Pray for us, your officers. But don't just pray for us, your officers. Pray and ask the Lord to whom you should be speaking the truths of the gospel. To whom should you be sharing the gospel? In what places, in what arenas, in which conversations should you be seeking to stand faithfully contending for the gospel instead of trying to obsessively find a way to fit in. Fitting in is the opposite of belonging. Because you have to become what you aren't for others' approval. The gospel is very simple. It's not about what we do for God. It's about what God in Christ has done for us. And your faith is uber personal, yes? Is there anything in your life more personal than your faith in God? It's designed to be personal, but it's not designed to be private. Do you trust in the active ability of God to suddenly convert anyone? Even them? Yeah. Especially them. Because they're not too far gone. They're, new too, they're not too far away. So I invite you all in your helplessness, in your seasons of helplessness, in your arresting thoughts of helplessness, to turn to Christ in prayer. Don't waste that time wallowing. Secure the power of that time. And surrenderingly yield in prayer to the only one who really has the power to transform circumstances, sure, but even more radically, people. Amen? Amen. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the one true gospel. We thank you that there is no room for pride in our conversion or our Christian life. And so, God, in your mercy, show us our helplessness. Lead us into triumphant dependence, not upon ourselves, not upon our thoughts or our actions. Give us a holy dependence upon you, that you would become great and that we would become less. Thank you, Father, for the radical nature of our transformation. May it further unto your glory and all God's people agree.